Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is always, and I'll say this, it's always an honor and a pleasure to stand here in the pulpit and open the Word of God, and this pulpit in particular. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at the opening verses of the epistle of Jude. Jude is the shortest book in the Bible, consisting of only 25 verses in a single chapter. Uh, This letter, placed at the end of the canon, just before the book of Revelation, does not get a lot of attention. We most commonly see it invoked when the last two verses, 24 and 25, are used as a benediction at the close of a worship service. Um, It's my intention to start a short sermon series on the book of Jude. Um, You don't hear from me very often, so it will be necessarily intermittent, Um, but I'll pick it up the next time I have an opportunity to preach on Sunday morning. Today I'm going to make some opening remarks about the history and authorship of Jude, then we'll look specifically at verses 1 through 7. And then we'll have some points of application. As always, we'll go through the text in detail and then bring it to bear on our context. So let's first read the text. Starting with verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to assemble here this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you will be with us this morning. Help me, Lord, to expound the word rightly. Help all those here to be attentive and focused and listen. We pray that your spirit will be with us and that we will learn from the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, what do we know about the history and authorship of this book? Well, in the first verse, we have a salutation, that is the greeting found in the opening lines of a Roman-era letter. Just as with the Pauline epistles and with those of James and Peter and with 2nd and 3rd John, the letter opens by telling us who it is from and who it is written to. It says it is from Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, in verse 1. Jude is almost certainly half-brother to Jesus and brother to James. He's not an apostle in the strict sense, and he's not one of the twelve. He refers to the teaching of the apostles in verse 17 of the letter, but he does not number himself among them. Most commentators think he was the younger son of Mary and Joseph. He's mentioned by name in the list of Jesus' brothers in Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. Um, It's important to remember that the names Jude and Judas are used interchangeably in the English Bible. 
Um, they're actually the same in Greek, and it was a common name among Jews in the first century. The English variation between the two is traditionally used to distinguish this Jude from the apostle who betrayed Christ. The book of Jude was certainly written in the first century in that it was written by a contemporary of our Lord. Scholars differ on exactly when, and we have very few contextual clues. On the question of who the letter was originally written to, we have little to go on. The salutation says it is to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. But there is nothing to tell who these believers were specifically, where they lived, or whether they were Jewish or Gentile Christians. The content of the letter seems, at least in part, targeted to readers of a Jewish background. Jude quotes from at least two non-canonical writings, which we believe were widely circulated among first-century Jews. I'll say more about that in a minute, but for the immediate question, it suggests that the readers were Jews rather than Gentile converts. This conclusion is supported also by the identity of Jude himself, who was Jewish. He was from Galilee and Palestine and he was certainly part of the Jewish community there. As is often the case with the scriptures, the Lord has not given us much of the detail of the circumstances under which it was originally written. It is enough, however, for us to know that it is the holy and inerrant word of God, and it is for our good. Jude was pretty obviously written based on its text in response to false teaching in the early church. Now, we don't know a lot about the heresy Jude was responding to. What we know is what we can glean from the textual clues, much like what we see in Paul's writings in 1 and 2 Corinthians and in Galatians. We don't have the other side to compare it to, so we have to just sort of work it out. It seems to have included antinomianism um, as well as some sort of sexual license and a general sensual indulgence. And by antinomianism, I mean a rejection of the law of God, a false teaching that as Christians we are not obligated to follow the moral law of God. That is what antinomian is, and it is indeed a false teaching. These false teachers were perverting the gospel, and they were out for their own good rather than for the good of the sheep. Many over the centuries had described the false teaching at issue in Jude as Gnosticism, but that's not quite right. True Gnosticism arose in the second century, and it's characterized primarily by a cosmic dualism that's not present in Jude. But the false teachers in Jude certainly had some of the same symptoms as the later Gnostics, namely an overrealized eschatology and an aversion to being governed by the moral law of God. As I alluded to a few minutes ago, Jude quotes at least two non-canonical writings in the letter. The first, which appears in verses 14 and 15, is the Book of Enoch, There's also a reference to material from that source in verse 6, where Jude references the fall and punishment of certain angels. The second source, which is quoted in verse 9, is is called the Assumption of Moses. Now, these are both extra-canonical, meaning they're writings that aren't part of our Bible, that have been judged by the church over the years to not be actual scripture themselves. Um, And we believe they were widely circulated in the Jewish community in Palestine in the first century. Now, while those writings themselves are not part of the Word of God, don't go running home and feel the need to read them, the small sections that are quoted in Jude are Scripture because they're part of the holy and inerrant Word of God, and we must treat them as such. And I'll speak more of those as we go along. So I'm now going to take this morning's text verse by verse, 
and comment on it by way of explication. Um, I think you'll find it helpful here to have your Bible open, and we'll begin at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude opens, as I mentioned earlier, with a greeting. In verse 1, he tells us who he is and who he is writing to. He describes himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, this is of course true in that he is a Christian and doubtless a respected leader in the early church. By his writing of this canonical letter, we know he was laboring for the gospel and teaching and encouraging others. What is remarkable here is Jude's humility. He does not ascribe to himself any other titles or credentials, and in a sense, what greater title could there be? We must also consider that Jude, like Paul, did not initially believe Jesus was the Christ. Um, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that at least as of that time, that point in Jesus' earthly ministry, his brothers did not believe in him. It's fair to conclude that Jude may have felt humbled and ashamed by his early failure to believe. In verse 22, Jude instructs his readers to have mercy on those who doubt. Jude further describes himself as the brother of James. This seems to be an oblique way of identifying himself with a measure of humility. He could have said, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to do so would have been to boast in the flesh. It is not Jude's family relationship to Jesus that gives him authority, but rather his spiritual status as a Christian and a church leader. James himself was highly respected, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul refers to James as the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19, but James does not claim that title for himself in his own epistle. He refers to himself instead as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude follows the same pattern by not claiming his family relationship to Jesus. In the second part of verse 1, Jude tells who he is writing to, at least categorically, if not by name. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude describes his reader with three phrases. They are called, loved, and kept. These phrases are, of course, related, but taken together, they instruct on what it means to be in Christ. First, the recipients are called. It does not say those who decided to follow Christ. They are called. The process of salvation involves God's election, his choosing of his people. They are then called by the Holy Spirit, who regenerates their hearts so they will respond in faith to the gospel. And once regenerated, all of God's people will in fact respond to the word and come to a saving faith in Christ. None of his chosen sheep will be lost. The set of people Judas writing to consists of true believers predestined for eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Puritan commentator, commentator Thomas Manton, who I read in preparation for this, writes, Calling is the first and immediate fruit of election by which it springs out and is exercised in mercy. Second, the recipients are beloved of God the Father. Jude's audience then, as now, are objects of the Father's love. 
they, and us, are worthy objects of that love, not out of our own merit or law-keeping, but due to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In contrast to non-believers, including the false teachers who inspired the letter, the Christians Jude is writing to are God's beloved children. They are declared legally righteous, and God does not see their sin, but rather Christ's imputed righteousness. Third, the recipients of the letter are kept for Jesus Christ. The church is Christ's bride. Then, as now, those who are united through faith with Christ are God's people. We are destined to meet the Lord on the last day and be judged righteous based on his righteousness. We are kept in the sense that we are preserved and cared for by God. We are given trials and troubles, but these are not punishment for sin, but rather they are fatherly discipline meant for our good. We are legally righteous when we come to faith, but God works in us to purge remaining sin and make us actually righteous. A Christian and a non-believer can experience the same difficult providence, but in the case of the believer, it is for our good. We can confidently say that all that befalls us as Christians is for our good. God's people are indeed kept for Christ. Next, we'll look at verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Just as he described his recipients with three phrases in verse 1, Jude now expresses a threefold blessing upon them in verse 2. He speaks of mercy, peace, and love. He asks that these blessings be multiplied, which can also be translated that they may have those qualities in abundance or be filled with them. The greeting mercy and peace was in common use by Jews in the first century. But here, in the Christian context, Jude adds love to the common formula. The gospel secures our standing before God, and as in verse 1, Christians are worthy objects of God's love because of Christ's righteousness. We must be mindful that Jude is pronouncing his blessing at the outset of a letter in which he is sternly warning the recipients against error and apostasy. Much like Paul, Jude begins by making it clear that he regards the recipients as Christians, and he has their spiritual good in mind. We move now to verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We might call verse 3 a tale of two letters, the one Jude had been anxious to write and the one he was actually compelled to write. In the past, before writing the actual letter, Jude was anxious to write to the same recipients about our common salvation. The implication is that he intended to write a pastoral letter encouraging the recipients on various topics of Christian practice and experience. We don't know if Jude ever wrote such a letter, but it has not been preserved for us if he did. Jude tells us that he felt compelled instead to write the present letter. He found it necessary to do so. We learn in verse 4 why that was, but here we are given the theme of Jude's epistle. He felt it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is what Jude is about. He's making an argument that the recipients should contend or strive or argue for the true faith. That is, the truth of the gospel, Orthodox Christianity. 
Jude describes that orthodoxy as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are reminded here of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God's revelation, brothers and sisters, is now complete, and the gospel has been fully revealed. The Jewish recipients of this letter formerly worshipped God via shadows and types of the law and the prophets, but now Christ has been fully revealed. Jude is writing in the apostolic age. The true faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. The saints are, of course, the Christians, the church, God's true chosen people in this age. They have the truth. It has been deposited with them and Jude is writing to exhort them to contend for that faith. And that brings us to verse 4, where we learn why this is necessary. And he writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here in verse 4, the letter becomes polemical. There are false teachers in the church. They are wolves among the flock. Judas a shepherd, a watchman, who was exercising pastoral care over the church by writing his letter. Now Jude doesn't mince any words here, and he doesn't hesitate to name the wolves for what they are. He writes that certain people have crept in unnoticed, There is a single Greek word here that's translated as crept in unnoticed. The word appears nowhere else in the Bible, and it has a sense of criminal or illicit. It was not an accident that the people Jude is talking about here were not noticed when they crept in. Their stealth is by design. Jude next says that the persons he's referring to long ago were designated for this condemnation. He is putting them categorically outside the church. They are not believers. They are not in Christ. Jude here makes an authoritative pronouncement about the false teachers about whom he is writing. They were long ago designated for condemnation. They are what we call the reprobate, those who are not God's elect. This may shock us. We are hesitant to condemn others in such a manner because we cannot ever truly know the heart of another man. But of course, in the church, we do make judgments based on the words and actions of others. Our session makes decisions about whether to admit people to church membership based on what we know about the applicant. Similarly, we examine officer candidates at both the session and presbytery levels by inquiring about their beliefs and investigating their character and reputation. We do not ever know for certain if someone is a true believer, but we judge based on what we do know. But in the case of the false teachers in Jude, We do know for sure, because it says so in the word of God. They are termed ungodly people. Jude goes on to tell us what has caused him to reach this conclusion. He makes two charges against the false teachers. They they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The first of these, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality, speaks of antinomianism. That is, the rejection of God's law. If we are not under the condemnation of the law, then why not sin freely? 
if we have certain eternal destiny in Christ, then why not engage in vice? If all our sins are paid for, why not freely indulge our lusts and passions? The scriptures condemn such thinking consistently and in harsh terms. Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. He writes, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. He speaks to it also in Romans 6, 22-23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. We are not saved by our own righteousness or by our own works. Our best deeds are worthless for meriting salvation. But if we are in Christ, our response to the free gift of grace is gratitude. We seek to obey his law because we love him. We also seek to obey it because it is for our good. Living according to God's law is to be truly human, to live as we were meant to live. None of us are, of course, able to perfectly keep the law of God, but the Christian life is one of frequent repentance. We continually turn from our sin and strive to do better. This contrasts starkly with the rejection of the law and the teaching that we are free to sin as much as we like because our eternal destiny is secure. For a man who holds himself out as a church leader and teacher to teach that believers need not strive to live according to the law is grave error. The text here accuses the false teachers of perverting the grace of God into sensuality. The word translated sensuality has a sense of unbridled lust and licentiousness. In New Testament usage, it is usually used in the context of sexual sin, although not exclusively so. Jude is making a strong allegation against the teachers indeed. This calls to mind the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount that we use this morning in our reading of the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The moral law is still in effect. The second charge is even more direct. The false teachers deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly how they were denying Christ, but we know they were doing so. We can deny Christ and our religious opinions and theology if we deny who he is, to believe that he is not fully God and fully man, or that he was not born of a virgin and resurrected from the dead, all deny him. To fail to claim him as Lord is to deny him. But we can also deny him by how we live our lives. And that may be what Jude had in mind here. If we claim to be followers of Christ, but live lives unworthy of him, we deny him in our deeds. For a supposed church leader and teacher to do so is a serious matter indeed. And that brings us to verse 5. Verse 5, here let me read it. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And verse 5 gives us the first of three examples that Jude uses here to illustrate the consequences of unbelief. He prefaces his example with these words. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. The implication is that he fears the recipients are being persuaded by false teachers. They've been instructed in the true faith, and they once fully knew it. The suggestion is that their understanding has softened, and they are in need of a reminder. 
The shepherd is going to where wolves are making an incursion, and he's mending the fence. The first illustration is this, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The point of these words could not be more clear. God's deliverance of his people from Egypt typifies his kingdom. It certainly happened historically. Christianity is indeed a historical religion based on actual facts and events. But the deliverance of God's people from Egypt was also a picture of his larger plan of salvation for the whole world. God brought the people of Israel up out of Egypt, but those who did not believe God perished in the wilderness. Mr. Hutton read Numbers 14 for us a little bit earlier. And we have that account in both Numbers 14 and Numbers 32, where the spies make their report, the people grumble and seek to return to Egypt. God's judgment was that every adult over the age of 20, except Joshua and Caleb, would die in the wilderness for their lack of faith. To be God's people in God's land requires faith. Those who did not believe were destroyed. We must also take notice that Jude says it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. The scripture here tells us that the deliverance of the Israelites from the work, was the work of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Jude's point is clear. The false teachers may have at one time been in the visible church, just as the grumbling Israelites were, but without faith in the gospel, they are destined for destruction. That brings us to verse 6. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jude's second example of judgment for non-belief is about fallen angels. Now, there's not a lot revealed to us in Scripture about angels. They appear from time to time to deliver messages from God, such as the Annunciation to Mary, and they're sometimes mentioned tangentially, such as the reference to Michael in Daniel 12. This verse and a similar verse in 2 Peter 2.4 are about the only explicit references to fallen angels. We must be careful, brothers and sisters, not to become captivated by this subject. God has revealed little to us about angels, and we should not engage in vain speculations. We know from Hebrews 1 that Christ is much superior to angels in every way. And it is on him that we ought to focus our thoughts and our study. We do know that in first century Judaism, as earlier, there was much extra-canonical teaching and speculation about angels. The non-canonical book of Enoch purports to contain a prophecy about how certain angels sinned by coming to earth and taking to themselves human wives. Jewish tradition held that the offspring of these unions were the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Now, we don't know if that's true. I certainly don't. And it doesn't matter, but it does help us understand why Jude might have chosen this example. He's appealing to a popular understanding about the punishment of fallen angels and using an example that resonated with his original audience. What we do know from the book of Jude itself, which is inerrant, is that there were angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. This was a sin against God, and God punished it. Those fallen angels are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Now, note here the parallel to verse 1. Christians are kept for Christ until the last day, but the fallen angels are kept imprisoned to await final judgment. Like the unbelieving Israelites, the apostate angels are punished for their unbelief. And that brings us finally to verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude's third example of unbelief being punished is Sodom and Gomorrah. These ancient cities of the plain and their fate are recorded in Genesis 18 and 19. God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their grave sin. Abraham negotiates with God, and God agrees to spare Sodom if ten righteous men can be found there. That does not work out for them. Two angels then go to Sodom, and Abraham's nephew Lot invites them to stay in his home. Genesis tells us that all of the people of the city, to the last man, surround Lot's house, and the men demand that Lot send out the angels that they might engage in unnatural sexual acts with them. God delivered Lot from Sodom. And then God destroyed the cities by raining sulfur and fire from heaven. This destruction is both a literal historical reality and a picture of God's judgment. It typifies the fate of those who do not believe at that last day. I will mention that there are false teachers in our own day, among them those who seek to reconcile homosexuality with biblical Christianity, who falsely teach that the sin of Sodom was a lack of hospitality rather than the unlawful sexual acts and desires in the scriptures. The book of Jude soundly rebuts any such teaching. Jude is quite clear that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire. The application of this to the original recipients of Jude's letter is quite pointed. The false teachers are engaging in licentious conduct and teaching others it is okay for Christians to do the same. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged by God and destroyed for this same kind of sin, and they serve as a warning. Jude is writing to warn a group of first century Christians against apostasy. He is warning them to contend for the true faith against the false teachers, and he teaches them through these three examples, that the consequences of unbelief are God's righteous judgment. I now have a a few brief words of application for you, and you may not believe me about the brevity, but I'll do my best. The apostolic faith, brothers and sisters, is true. It has not changed since it was revealed. That faith, entrusted to the church, is the sole means by which man can be reconciled to God. And we must be reconciled if we hope to avoid eternal punishment. We are all sinners. We are born with a sinful nature, and we commit actual sins daily. God is holy, and he cannot tolerate sin. We can be reconciled to him and enjoy eternal life if we turn from our sins and accept the free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. Any other gospel... Any other theology is a one-way ticket to eternal punishment, to hell. We must cling to the true faith. 
It is not popular in these days. It was not popular in the first century either. To those who are perishing, it is foolishness indeed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We see in verses 5 through 7 of Jude that faith determines our eternal destiny. God has chosen for himself a people, those who are united in faith to Jesus Christ. God does not treat all people the same. He has elected some for eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, and some for eternal punishment. Some are elect, and some are reprobate. If you are putting your faith in Christ, adhering to the historic apostolic faith, then you can be assured of eternal life with Christ. But if you are at war with God, if you are putting your trust in anything else other than the gospel of Christ, then you're headed for a different fate, and I urge you to turn and repent. The text this morning teaches about unfaithful Israelites, about rebellious angels, and about those given over to sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're given three examples of those who are to receive God's righteous judgment. It is, of course, a judgment we all deserve apart from Christ. There is nothing about Christians, about God's elect, that makes us actually deserving of eternal life. We are as guilty as the reprobate apart from Christ. But in him, by faith, we are pardoned, brothers and sisters. If the original audience of Jude was exhorted to contend for the faith entrusted to them, we should do so even more. We have a complete Bible, the Word of God, in our hands, multiple copies in our homes, so that we can be certain of God's revelation. But what do we do with it? Ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, what do you spend more time reading, your Bible or Facebook? The Word of God or Instagram? The Holy Scriptures or TikTok? God's full and final revelation to his people or Fox News? We have in our hands God's completed revelation, yet we spend much of our free time voluntarily exposing ourselves to the messaging of the pagan culture around us. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, to focus your minds and affections on Christ and on God's word. The pagan world around us is at war with God, as were we all when we were still dead in our sins. Jude teaches us that we must struggle, we must resist, we must remain true to the orthodox Christian faith and resist the false teaching around us. I have three points for you as to how we can do that. First, keep the faith. Second, resist the world. And third, live like a Christian. First, as Jude exhorts us, we must keep the faith. The deposit with which we have been entrusted is the central truth of all the world. We must cling to Orthodox Christianity and work to keep the church pure. Each of you who is a communicant member of this or any other PCA church has sworn an oath to study the purity and peace of the church. If you are visiting with us, we hope that someday soon you will join us in that promise. We must all seek to avoid error and keep our theology consistent with the word of God. The world around us hates the church and wants to destroy her. There are many buildings and many organizations in our day that label themselves as churches, but many of those groups do not preach and teach the gospel. The broader culture applauds when a former church abandons the doctrines of the faith and instead embraces the strictures of the world. You need not look far from our front door to find churches so-called that encourage and affirm 
fornication, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Jews' warning is highly relevant in our day. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to exercise great wisdom and discretion in the teaching and content you consume and expose yourselves to. We have access via the internet to an endless assortment of podcasts, books, videos, and content of every format on the subject of religion. Some of it is excellent, but much of it is perilous and false. Be wise in what you consume. Your session here works diligently, but of course imperfectly, to ensure that what is taught from this pulpit in our Sunday school classes and at other official church functions is orthodox, wholesome, and useful for the people of all saints. You can trust that your session seeks to watch out for this part of Christ's flock, and I ask that you pray for us in that regard. I also suggest that you consider that your primary source of preaching and teaching should be this, your local church. When you read a book or listen to a podcast or a sermon on the internet, consider the source. Is the author or speaker an officer in an Orthodox church? Is he under the authority of a body of Orthodox men who will hold him accountable if he teaches falsely? Is he a good reputation in the community of Reformed churches? If not, then perhaps that teaching is best avoided. Second, brothers and sisters, we must resist the world. I am probably of the last generation in this country who grew up surrounded by vestiges of cultural Christianity. The world around us today is openly hostile to Christianity in a manner the West has not seen for millennia. Such a state of affairs is, of course, very familiar to our brothers and sisters in the Muslim world, in China, and North Korea, and elsewhere. We must accept the reality that the world is openly hostile to the faith and govern ourselves accordingly. We must constantly remind ourselves that the cultural content we are so enticed by is spawned by an anti-Christian worldview. Most of the content being produced via popular movies, novels, and streaming television programs is written to subtly indoctrinate the viewer and normalize sin. Just consider the number of movies and television programs that depict homosexuality, transgenderism, fornication, and adultery in a positive light. When was the last time you saw a movie that portrayed a happily married couple who were sexually faithful to each other? And if you can think of one, when was it made? We are drawn in by the marketing and by other elements of the story that are appealing, and we're tempted to tolerate these positive depictions of sin. Brethren, we are formed by the content we consume. And for those with children at home, and for the young people who are old enough to understand, it is imperative that you guard yourselves and your families. Consider also the civil magistrate. Both of the major political parties here in the United States are sold out to the sexual revolution. One may be further gone than the other, but nobody in the public square is arguing for a biblical sexual ethic. Consider Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina, who recently drew attention to herself by joking about her own fornication at a gathering that was supposed to be a prayer breakfast. You might ask why I'm focusing on sexual sin. Well, in our time, that is where the battle is hottest. That is the place where the world is pushing the hardest and where we see weak churches and Christians most tempted to capitulate. But there are plenty of other areas. For example, keeping the Lord's Day and refusing to work on Sunday is utterly alien to our culture. The nation was shocked when the Supreme Court recently held that a letter carrier was entitled to refrain from working 
on the Sabbath. Another difficult area is education. With very few exceptions, the educational institutions in the United States have been completely compromised by secular materialism. Elite colleges that were founded to train pastors now utterly reject the Christian worldview and instead teach that man is an end unto himself. We are tempted to seek educational credentials from these institutions, but what kind of education are we paying for? Ask yourself if it is wise to seek instruction for yourselves or your children from those who are openly hostile to the word of God. These are difficult matters, and there's a need for godly wisdom and judgment and discernment. But I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to make decisions about entertainment, employment, education, and other important matters with your eyes firmly fixed on Christ. Third and finally, we must live as Christians. All of us who are members of All Saints or another PCA church have also sworn to strive to live as befits a follower of Christ. That is very much in keeping with our text this morning. We are not saved by our obedience, but if we have true faith, we will strive to obey God's law. His moral law is always binding on all people at all times. We must flee from greed, from lust, from murder, and from all sexual immorality. We must keep our thoughts and our words pure and undefiled. We must do this while surrounded by a culture which calls good evil and evil good, and which openly celebrates sin. We cannot do so perfectly, none of us can. Our liturgy each Sunday morning includes a public and private confession of sin. We model this together, but we must also confess and repent of our sin very frequently. We must resist the temptation to pick and choose the parts of God's law we want to obey. Living like a Christian means bringing your whole life, your time, your money, your relationships, and the inmost desires of your heart into submission to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in closing, I exhort you to contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us. Cling to Christ and resist the world. We have a certain and great hope before us, the ultimate reward. Our fate as Christians is neither to die in the wilderness, to be bound over in utter darkness for the last day, nor to be destroyed by fire. We must hold fast to our Lord and his gospel in the sure hope of eternal life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. Thank you for the epistle of Jude and for speaking to us through it this morning. We pray that you will help us to commit the things that we have heard to our hearts and to live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.